Today, we're going to be talking about corporate and environmental portraits with Zach Burlatt on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel. And as always, I think we've got a great show lined up for you today. A couple of things I want to let you know about. First of all, this is a podcast first and foremost. So you can find all the show notes for today at the website. Just find this episode. I wrote a little bit about my guest. I've got a small sample gallery about my guest. All the links that we talk about today, they're all up there. Just find the post and there's a ton of information for you. If you're watching on YouTube, most of that information is down below the like and subscribe button. I don't put all the blog posts that I write about my guest. Obviously, the sample gallery is not there, so you may still want to head over to the website. But still, a lot of the information and all the links that we talk about are there. So let's get into my guest today, Washington-based, editorial commercial photographer. I'd like to welcome Zach Burlatt to the show. Zach, how are you? I'm good, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's nice to meet you. I have, uh, I- I'm have. i a fan of your work. Let's put it that way. Well, thank you. You, you shoot photography in a way, I guess the best word I could think of is I find it refreshing. And I'll explain as we got, kind of go through the show. Uh, I found you obviously through Wonderful Machine, and I've had another recent guest from Wonderful Machine on, Alex Buis. And for those of you that don't know Zach, I do want to get a little bit of an introduction to you. And I want to start with this because when I look through your portfolio, I know how I, I think I even emailed you at one point. I know how I kind of think in my head how I would describe what you do. Random person comes up to you at a cocktail party. Hi, I'm Steve. What do you do? How do you answer that? Um, I mean, beyond just saying that I'm a, you know, typically I frame it as I'm a commercial and editorial portrait photographer. Um, And then, you know, from there, it just depends on how much detail they want about, you know, my approach and all that. Okay. So I'm going to be the guy at the cocktail party now. So you're a commercial and editorial photographer, but how do you, how do you describe how you see the world through your photography? Um. You know, I think my goal with a lot of my photos, I mean, I I work very much in environmental portraiture. And so a lot of what I do is kind of reacting to the the scene that I am given. Um, I don't always have a ton of control. Actually, I rarely have a ton of control over where we shoot. And so, you know, what I think and how I approach is I want to come away with a photo where the other people in the room look at the shot and say, whoa you, you, I was standing right there. Like I didn't see this. Um, that's kind of my, that's kind of my goal. Okay. I like that. And your work has taken you to some interesting places, a 14th century monastery, a six by 12 jail cell. The jail cell actually is interesting to me. I understand you're doing this jail project type thing. Could you explain that? Yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's the, the photography side of it is finished. Um, this was one of those, projects that unfortunately kind of got derailed. Um, we finished it right before COVID. It was like December, 2019, I think was our, our last shoot. But, um, I partnered with a, a really wonderful local nonprofit called better health together. And it was really just raising awareness of, um, the, the, you know, the jail system. And, uh, so we, we did a, did portraits on four different days of mostly, incarcerated individuals, uh, but also some people working in the jails. Uh, 
that was a situation where I got no say on, you know, you got to shoot this in a jail. And right. Uh, when we toured the facility, I was really nervous about how do we make this look good? Because I mean, those, uh, it's truly, it's like a six by 12 concrete painted white room. Um, so as you can imagine, trying to control light and create a mood in that, um, in that space was really difficult, but I'm really proud of the work that we, that we did. And I think we're finally moving forward on actually kind of, um, turning that into the final piece, which the photos will be paired with, uh, you know, quotes and stories of the individual's photographs. Where, where will those be? What, what's the outlet for those? Um, I believe they'll be on uh, Better Health Together's uh, website. Okay. And I wish I had a timeline, but, you know, these things move slowly. There are layers of approval that need to happen, especially with with the jail being involved. But um, it was way outside my comfort zone, but I'm so, so proud of that work. So when it does go live, let me know and I'll add it to the links in the show notes. I, I'd love to, yeah. I saw something, a quote from you, I think it might have been in your bio, that you come to your subjects with compassion and curiosity. And that stuck with me. Explain your, the compassion I think I get, explain the curiosity you bring to a set. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think I'm just always curious to kind of get to know the person beyond just, uh, surface level stuff, you know, I mean, having photographed, you know, uh, incarcerated individuals comes to mind of, you know, we all kind of have our, you know, preconceptions of right. what a person's life is like, but you know, that extends to, you know, I've photographed people who are kind of like in the spotlight and, you know, just like trying to understand them as a person, you know, what, you know, like, how's your day going? Are you like, are you uncomfortable right now? Like, cause I, I always try to bring that up of like, this might be a really normal day for me, but for a lot of people getting their photo taken with, you know, strobes set up and, and, you know, a crew sometimes it's really weird. So I right. try to just, I just connect with the person. Um, otherwise it's going to be an awkward exchange. Well, and, and you made a comment that you kind of specialize in environmental portraiture, which I, I see corporate, Corporate portraiture, environmental portraiture mix, like corporate environments. So let's get into talking photography a little bit, because that brings in, to me at least, a big question. You can photograph a corporate executive, an employee, a teacher, whatever, in their environment 17 ways from Sunday. How do you best, sh I should word that differently. How do you show somebody at their best in their environment? You know, for me, I think the environment is an opportunity to tell the story of that person. Um, and so that's where, you know, in a lot of these environmental portraits, they're shot pretty wide. I feel like um, that really pulls in the ability for me to kind of play with foreground elements which really pulls you into that photo. Um, so, you know, for me, it's just looking at every possible angle. There's usually the obvious one. Sometimes that's the best shot, but sometimes it's not. Um, and so just kind of like, you know, when I explain to people, um, 
you know, scouting locations and just making sure you get the shot. I, for me, it's about being stubborn with myself of like, I am not going to just let this be good enough. Cause I, I've spent a lot of my, my early years in my career going with good enough. Cause I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I don't want them to think I don't know what I'm doing. And, and now I'm stubborn. I'm like, no, there's something better here. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's just about exploring the space and, and being stubborn. So what you just described is using an environment as a prop. That I find that interesting. And the shot we're going to talk about later today is a perfect example of that, that this is not what I, had I walked into the scene that we're going to talk about today, I don't think this is the obvious point of view that I would have taken, especially the, the, the vertical angle that you're at. Uh, you'll understand, folks, when we get to the shot. So here's a question for you, though. You walk into an environmental corporate portrait type scenario. When the vision is your own, sometimes it's their vision, but when the vision is your own creative vision, how do you communicate your vision with the subject beforehand? Um, That's a good question, Steve. I mean, I think I, like I often don't. Uh, a lot of times it's kind of expressed through my excitement. Uh, I'm not very, I mean, I am like, I can definitely, you know, turn on and just be like a pleasant person, but it's really clear when I start getting excited about, you know, the shot or whatever. And so I think I just, I use that momentum of like, when I, when I found the shot or the angle that I'm really excited about, you know, I'll, I'll bring them into that process. And, you know, like a lot of times, um, you know, if it, if it looks great and I'm stoked on it, I'll, you know, depending on the subject, I'll show them the back of the camera and be like, dude, like, look at this. This is, this looks cool, right? Like get, get on board with me. This is going to be great. And then, um, you know, those are my favorite shoots when the subject kind of gets on board and, um, you know, participates. I think we've all right. had, had subjects that kind of participated in, in, you know, contributed and others who kind of just sit and, and have their photo taken. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't often explain, I just say like, I'm excited about this and I think you should be too. I like that. I like that. So before we get into the shot, a couple of quick notes for everybody. First of all, this show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If your podcast app of choice or outlet of choice, like a Spotify or something like that is audio only, I got you covered on that one, right? If your outlet of choice supports video, well, there is a separate video feed. If you go to behindtheshot.tv on the right-hand side of the homepage are all the ways that you can subscribe to this podcast. One of which, by the way, being YouTube, if you are watching on YouTube, Everything is down, all the information, all the links, again, down below the like and subscribe button. And wherever you get your podcast, if you would take a moment, and if you would leave a star rating or a written review, it really does help with not only discoverability, but just me knowing that people are enjoying what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Also, I want to thank my friends over at DVE Store. It's at dvestore.com. They provide the high-def video. And so to everybody there, thank you very much. And if you're looking for digital video equipment, head on over to dvestore.com. So that brings us to the image. The image today I mentioned earlier, before I even bring it up, I want to talk about something here really quick. Because the image that we're going to talk about today isn't what I pictured when I saw the subject matter as the viewpoint I would have even seen in my head. And it reminded me of Dead Poet Society. 
where Robin Williams stands on the desk, basically saying, you have to look at the world from different points of view. So before I bring this image up, I just want to ask you, when you walked into this scene, is what we're about to see the first viewpoint that came to your mind or did it take work for you to go, oh, this? Well, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm just thinking about what I said earlier about rarely having control over my environment. This was actually a shoot where I did have some control. So, um, yeah, this was a this one was a process. Um, I didn't I didn't know what the room looked like going in. And luckily, you know, this was a, uh, a science professor at Gonzaga University and, you know, we were friends. And so it was a it was a casual uh, vibe, you know, where I felt really comfortable taking time and, and, and changing things. So no, it, it took some time to get to this shot for sure. So this is the photo that we're talking about and you call it science in action. And this viewpoint to me is something I wouldn't have thought of. Like I would have thought of the microscopes. I would have thought of him behind a table with the microscopes. I would have thought of the background elements and I'll get into describing the shot for those of you on audio here in a minute. I would have thought of some of this, but most likely I would have shot top down or eye level or something. The way that you used the environment as props here so radically emphasizes the environment. So radically emphasizes the story I don't know this guy and I immediately know this guy. Like, I mean, instantaneously, I know what he does. I know where he's at. Just amazing. Let's start with technical side. So I looked at EXIF data, if it's correct, and tell me if it's not. Okay. Manual exposure on a Nikon D750, a Tamron 24 to 72.8. White balance was auto, but you were in spot metering which I'm going to ask about in a minute. Uh, 1/160th at f3.5, 26 millimeters on that 24. So you're almost wide open on the on focal length. Interestingly enough, ISO was not listed in the EXIF data. Hmm. So I don't know what your what ISO that? was. Does everything else sound right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it sounds right to me. Do you know what your ISO was? I mean, if I had to guess, it was a hundred. Um, that's okay. base ISO on that camera, which I, you know, if I'm using lights, I, I, I try to stay at base. So I want to ask first about the spot metering because on a D750, spot metering is useful. I shoot Canon. For those that don't know on Canon, spot metering works completely different on everybody except the top of the line one, one uh, D series, or the uh, upcoming R whatever it's going to be, one type body. All the lower bodies below the top of the line, spot metering does not follow the focus point, right? So if you if you are in a spot metering mode and you put the focus point up here, it's still going to spot meter off the center of the, the window. So on Nikon, that's not the case. Almost all of their upper bodies, if I move that focus point up and somewhere else, it spot meters off of that focus point. Now, I have had people say to me before, but even Nikon prioritizes the focus point in metering mode or matrix type mode, um, evaluative mode, 
that is true. Still not exactly the same, however, as a spot meter or their spot metering wouldn't actually exist. So you spot metered here. I'm assuming your focus point was on his face. Yeah. Okay. So you're metering off of his face. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I, you know, I would say the metering is kind of an artifact of, you know, the, the rest of the things I shoot, which are more candid. Um, because I lit this, I, I wasn't too worried about um, the metering values. Is 1/160th normal for you? Um, yeah, definitely. I, I definitely, um, I don't think I have the steadiest hands. And I know, you know, I'm shooting with strobe, so it's not as much of an issue. But uh, I've had too many times where, I went a little low on shutter speed and, and the image is a little soft. So, um, you know, I'll definitely open up shutter speed if it, if it helps me get some more ambient light, but I didn't really feel like I needed it with this shot. And here you're almost at a flash sync speed. So you're cutting out most of the ambient as well. Uh, and by the way, you're the only other person who's admitted what I do all the time. And that is in my case, as I've gotten older, I don't shoot as low of a shutter speed during a show because I just don't feel like I'm as stable as I used to when I'm shooting quickly. F3.5, also kind of an average for you, or are you doing? Are you choosing F3.5 based on your flash? Because, you know, shutter speed would control ambient and flash would, uh, uh, aperture would control flash more. Yeah, I mean, I'd say uh, typically I'm shooting pretty large apertures, you know, anywhere from, you know, wide open on the lens to f four or five or so. Um, and really that's kind of a function of just the, the, the amount of output I have on my lights. You know, I like to get my lights as close as possible to the subject. So it's really soft and has a nice fall off. And so, um, I also don't want to blind them. So, um, yeah, I just often shoot pretty wide open. So you mentioned earlier that you tend to shoot wide in the environments, this one being at 26 millimeters, but I want to ask you about the white balance and the fact that this was auto white balance. First of all, do you normally shoot auto white balance and correct in post? Um, I would say it's about 50%, you know, and honestly, it's kind of just like half the time I remember and care to do custom white balance and half the time I just say, I'll worry about it in post because shooting raw, it's kind of just six of one half dozen of another. Um, you know, if it's a shoot where I'm really heavily relying on what I'm looking at on the back of the camera and I know what I want that to look like in post, then sure. I'll, I'll dial in the, the white balance. So is that totally trusting your eyes or do you throw up a gray card or something like that at an early scene? Uh, and and no, I'm asking I'm, because you're, uh, I know how accurate your eye is because in the green room, we went through a thing <laughs> where the image was a little greener than you thought it should look. And I recorded a test video and we went back and forth and we ended up finding that the, the JPEG that I had was pro photo RGB. Once you re-exported it and resent me a standard SRGB generic RGB fo uh, file um, that corrected all of that. Because again, we're talking different RGB models with pro photo Adobe and sRGB. We brought it into video that's recording at rec 709 you're matching color profiles, but it was interesting to me that your eye caught that so quickly. So you trust your eye or do you do some setup to guarantee if you need it, let's, let's say you're shooting 
a product where, you know, that red has to be that Pantone red, what do you do to guarantee it? Um, yeah, I mean, where color is more critical, I'll definitely, um, that's a case where I'll just get white balance dialed in ahead of time and I'll shoot like a gray card or something like that. Okay. Uh, but stuff like this, um, yeah, I eyeball it. I mean, the biggest thing that I worry about is, um, unwanted color cast from ambient light. Um, and you know, this one, you know, if you look closely above his head, there's a light fixture and it's off. So I, off. I had yeah. control. Um, and also, you know, I, I use color gels on lights in this, uh, on this photo. And so I kind of, you know, I kind of knew that, you know, I wanted his face kind of daylight balance and I'd be adding these colors in, in later. So, okay. I want to get into that in a minute. First of all, for those of you on the audio feed, let me explain this photo. And Zach has watched the show, so he knows I do this every show. Sometimes I nail it. Sometimes I'm really, really bad at it. So when I'm done, let me know if I missed anything that I should have caught, okay? And hopefully I'm painting a picture in the mind of those of you that are on the audio feed, but you can go see this photo. If there's any color shifts or anything because of the video, or if you're listening on audio, please head to the website, behindtheshot.tv, and uh, there you will be able to see the actual photos. There's a gallery at the at the bottom of the post. This to me is a fantastic example of an environmental portrait. Landscape orientation, and I want you to picture a college style lab. As Zach just mentioned, at the top in darkness, the ceiling is dark. It's a T-bar drop type ceiling with the acoustic tiles. And there is a light fixture clearly off. Right. So the, the, the room lights are off at that point, but I'm going to start at the front and work my way back. There is a table. You are effectively on the table. Like you are, if you picture that you're a small little toy sitting on the table, that's your viewpoint. And in front of you scattered around are microscopes, lots of microscopes. I tried counting them. I think there's eight. Let's just say there's a lot of microscopes, right? And the two closest scopes go down below your viewpoint. So they go below the bottom of the shot and they bleed off the top of the shot as well. But beyond the first two, all the other microscopes you can see fully top to bottom. And the right-hand side has a chunk of scopes. The left-hand side has a chunk of scopes. And there's a small window of opportunity, a gap be between these microscopes. And by the way, the microscopes have almost like a, they appear to be black, but they have blue highlights on them as though you would picture them to be that gunmetal type blue. But I'm guessing that's one of the color gels that you use. In the gap, which by the way, the gap is exactly on a rule of thirds and lays out perfectly. And if you look through that gap, there's a man in a blue striped button up shirt and a blue blazer. He's bald like I am. He's got a mustache. He's got a beard. His right hand is on the table in this nice kind of relaxed environment. And again, he's a full size guy standing at a table. So technically these microscopes are kind of below his face so that he could put his face above the eyepiece, but you're a toy like height on the table. So you're looking up at him and he is looking down at you. The background on the left is a bookshelf. The background on the right is something I think 
is a piece of equipment. It's got like a blue cover on it. I'm not sure what it is. Again, lighting wise, I love it here because you've got the blue highlights. You've got no ceiling lights, which takes the top dark, which brings your eyes down to the guy. You've got a clearly lit up wooden table. On the left-hand side off screen, there is a light coming from the top left. I clearly see a light also coming from maybe one or two o'clock from the camera angle. So to your right. Again, I think blue light is added. Did I miss anything? I think you nailed it, Steve. Okay. So let's start with, we know now that you went in, you know the guy, uh, but tell me the story of setting this up. Yeah, I mean, so um, this was actually his office um, and I had never been in there before. And like most offices or classrooms on a college campus. It's kind of just like a beige box, not a lot of character to it. Um, so that's always challenge number one in shooting these kinds of photos. So, you know, that I immediately killed the fluorescent lights because really we don't need a lot of that blank wall space in the background and right. just the, it never, it's, it's never flattering with, the the color shift you get from those lights so um yeah and i mean it, it this was actually kind of a blank canvas um the microscopes were not there um oh and so we we really we had no plan with this photo it was it was piece by piece for sure so what made, okay, so whose idea was it to scatter the table with these microscopes and create an alleyway straight to the subject? Well, so, I mean, I was kind of, to be honest, I was kind of struggling to figure out how to make this interesting. And I just noticed, I think, because uh, this office is attached directly to a lab. And I saw there was literally, I mean, there was dozens of these microscopes just stacked on a table. And I kind of asked him, I'm like, what, can I move those? And he said, yeah, sure. And they were really heavy. They were probably like 25 pounds a piece. Um, and so they look yeah, large. I mean, Let me inter interject. They look large. Were they? Yeah. I mean, they, they were definitely, they were real deal microscopes. They're not like okay. order from a catalog for your kid. They, I mean, probably a couple feet tall. Um, and yeah, so I just started bringing them in um, and arranging them differently, looking at you know, looking at giving my subject a window, uh, that's something I'm, I always, I'm always looking at, you know, usually it's kind of where can I put him within the environment? And this time I was kind of lucky enough to be able to build that window for him. Well, okay. But when you built that window, again, this is, this is to me, I looked through your portfolio and this is, this made so much sense to me from your viewpoint not your view, viewpoint from the way I see you shoot is even the, the microscopes that are not the front one seem to be so intentionally meticulously placed. So you've got the two silver barrels surrounding his head. Then you have the mi a, a microscope that's in front of us. And then on the other side, so on that side, on the right side of him, you've got the rule of threes. The rule of odds, I should say, uh, with the three silver barrels. On the left-hand side, you can see the actual focal piece down that looks at the slide uh, closer. 
just really the positioning is great. So you you played with this for a while before getting it. Yeah, and I mean, I wish I could say it was super intentional. I mean, I really kind of, you know, spent a few minutes trying to make it look good. So yeah, there was certainly some tinkering. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of a, it was just a mix of having enough of them and and positioned in a way that added interest, but didn't completely take over or, um, you know, you have to give them enough space to be able to actually see their outlines and see what right. they are. So it is a little bit of a balance for sure. Well, I will say the one that's in front of him, if the actual objectives hanging off the bottom, the little three of them that you can rotate around, if those encroached his shirt, I think it would take away from the shot. They encroach his jacket, but his shirt line, the edge of the jacket, the edge of the blazer is intact. And I think that's actually critical here. Was that intentional? I don't even know. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I think maybe not directly, but I'm always thinking about things cutting into, you know, right. overlapping with my subject. So um, little things like that, I totally agree that, you know, that little focal piece, if it had cut through that line of his lapel would be annoying for me. Because for sure. because we're so used to that V of a jacket. Yeah. And seeing the full shirt, especially lit the way that it is. So here's the real question I have. And- Admit if this was accidental or not, but kind of inside of me, I'm hoping it's it wasn't. On the left-hand side, at the bottom rule of third, like here's the other thing with the rule of third. He's on the left rule of third vertically with the full window. The top rule of third is where the bluish microscopes change to the silver eyepieces. The bottom rule of third is the plates of these things. And on the left, and by the way, there, there's a slight skew right? There's a slight Dutch angle to the plates that are on the microscopes, which is key because at the very far left, between the body of the microscope on the left, just barely into the scene, the plate of the left microscope on the bottom, and the objective of the microscope hanging straight down is a word written on something in the back. And that word is not actually being, or whatever it is back there, it's not actually being encroached on by anything. It like fits perfect in this little window formed by that microscope. Again, filling the space, but not with something I can't recognize or is cut off. Intentional that that was positioned based on your angle or just accidental that it landed right in that hole? Um. Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit of both. It's similar to um, similar to that eyepiece not interrupting the lapel. I think it was something that I definitely was noticing things in the background, and so it's just kind of trying to create pleasing pleasing windows throughout the frame. So um, I don't didn't specifically want to showcase anything back there, but I did notice he had you know that was like the one area where he had some personal effects. So having some of that poke through was, was a nice bonus for sure. And, and it fits in there so perfectly. Like that's just such a detail. So let's talk lighting. I'm going to guess I'm going to be wrong, but I'm going to guess that there are three lights, maybe one to the left that you clearly see in the upper left corner one to the right as the key light on his face, and then one near where we are casting that blue. 
You're good, Steve. Yeah, it's three. Oh God, yes. Nailed okay. it. All right. So let's talk. Let's start with the key light, the main light. Right hand side, one or two o'clock, lighting his face, lighting his shirt. Right. Yep. Putting Phil on the fingers of his hand, but his hand is slightly rotated towards the light to the left. So let's just talk key light. What was that? Yeah, so that was a, so all three of these lights are the uh, Paul Seabuff Einstein strobes. And this was, uh, I think it was a medium softbox with a grid. And this was the one light out of the three that was not gelled. Uh, you know, I just wanted his, I wanted him, you know, his skin tone to be, you know, natural, uh, true to life. Okay. So that's at where? Uh, you're right. It's about, yeah, one to two o'clock. Um, and it's right out of frame. So it's close to him. It's two feet it's from really him, close. maybe three feet from him. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's talk with the rim light, which is the light that's lighting up the back wall, which is critical here because with the roof being dark and as, as a viewer, me knowing the lights were turned off because I can see that light off, it almost feels like that is a natural light in the room that's just somewhere else. Like it doesn't feel like you controlled the lighting. It feels like that's a natural light somewhere in the background, which I like. And it adds the rim light to the shadow side of his face, just a hair, helps light up his hand a little bit and helps rim light from the back these microscopes. Also a palsy buff, what was that gelled with? Um, definitely a... CTO, I can't remember, you know, if it was like a half CTO or quarter. But know, but that probably. wasn't for control. That wasn't trying to match fluorescent. You were just going for that look. Yeah. Or, so not, not fluorescent. I'm sorry. Yeah, it would be fluorescent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it would have been fluorescent. Yeah. And that was, it just had a seven inch reflector uh, and it, that, I can't remember if that one was gridded or not. It might've had a pretty uh, wide grid in it. Um. But it was for a couple things. It was to add some contrast and some rim light to the subject so it wasn't just falling off into darkness and to give some color contrast um, because of the next piece, which, you know, I decided the microscopes already, they were kind of like bluish gray, if I remember correctly. And so I just wanted, you know, I had some frames, uh, test shots of this without the blue and the Microsoft micro, uh, microscopes were just kind of dark and not much going on. And so I wanted to add some blue kind of science vibes, match his jacket. And then, you know, I'm realizing that we have this orange, you know, the orange of the desk um, that, you know, that orange backlight would provide some really nice uh, complementary colors. The, the harmony between the, the desk slash table itself and the blue is spot on. But again, what you just ma mentioned with matching the blue on the microscopes to his jacket, that's what makes the environmental scene to me. But I have a question for you. Oh, by the way, the blue light, any modifier on it? Yeah, that, um, that had a grid for sure because I really didn't want it anywhere but the microscopes. And it was actually kind of pointed a little bit back toward camera. So, cause I really did not want it hitting him at all. So explain to, to me your modifier choice. So as somebody who doesn't use flash a lot and a lot of people want to get better in flash, I'm always fascinated by 
you chose mixed modifiers. There's obvious reasons for that, some of which conceptually people might understand. But I want to know your your choice on it, right? So you chose to go with a softbox for a key light on him with a grid, but you chose to go with a seven-inch dish for the rim light, as opposed to you could have used a strip box or a softbox there. You could have used the same softbox, let's say. If you would use the exact same softbox with the exact same grid, explain to me why you chose the modifiers you did where you did. Yeah, I mean, so starting with the key light, I mean, I'm pretty much always, you know, I, I love the look of hard light. I rarely shoot with hard light as a key light. Um, and there are photographers who do wonderful work with that. But, you know, usually I'm going for soft light. And so that kind of, I, I mean, I think that was pretty much, that was a modifier I had at the time. It was pretty much, you know, do I want the medium one or the large one? And I think for this one, the large was too big uh, for the space. So that was really why I chose the soft box. I knew I wanted like warm, soft light on him. And, okay. um, and adding the grid uh, kind of came about because I was using these color gels and I didn't want too much of that, you know, daylight balance light kind of bleeding into where I want that color. So okay. um, keeping it soft but a little more controlled and it adds a little more contrast uh, to the subject too. So. So what about the rim light? Why the dish? Why not another softbox? Um, you know, I, I just always go for the seven inch reflector. I, to me, it a little more closely mimics like, you know, kind of a low sun uh, coming back at you. And I just, I, I love having them just out of frame so that they kind of flare into that top corner. And it's that's also a little harsher. I'm, yeah, exactly. Um, and okay, it's, I've I've tried to do that with uh, softer modifiers and just haven't haven't liked the look as much. And for those people wondering, if you look close at the subject here, that key light with a little bit of fill from the rim light creates a nice Rembrandt lighting, and just really really well done. So let's talk post processing for a minute. What your post-processing workflow is what and what would you have done to this in post? Yeah, I mean, so everything for me starts in Lightroom. Um, so, you know, just doing basic corrections, you know, opening up shadows and pulling highlights back. And definitely that's where I'll dial in white balance if I haven't already. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, you know, for portrait work like this, it always, you know, the the my my picks always go through Photoshop too. So you know, Photoshop, I'll take it in and do some dodging and burning, um, and do, you know, fairly extensive color work. Um, as you kind of picked up, I'm, I'm really particular about color. Um, I think mostly because I've spent a lot of my life really struggling with color. Um, and I still struggle with it, but I just, um, I know what I want photos to look like. And so, um, you know, it, Going back to not letting things be good enough, I'm like, um, you know, Photoshop really allows you to dial colors in granu and granularly. What do, you, what do you mean by I've struggled with color? Are you colorblind? I'm a little bit colorblind, um, which okay. I didn't actually know until a few years ago. Um, but it was definitely a, a, 
a question that came up. I did an internship with doing product photography out of college. And oh boy, I was asked a couple of times if I was colorblind, which in retrospect, yes, I am. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think especially, you know, starting out and, and learning how to light and understanding that light has a huge impact on color. Uh, I spent a lot of years being really frustrated with what my color photos looked like. I have a question for you because you said you you do most of your work in Lightroom, but then you take it to Photoshop where you do some dodging and burning. What is your preferred method in Photoshop for dodging and burning? Do you use the dodge and burn tool? Do you use a gray layer, layer in overlay mode? You know, what do you do? Yeah, you're totally right. There's so many ways to do it. Um, you know, the way I like to do it is I just do two curves adjustment layers. So one for dodging and one for burning. And so uh, oh. you know, for and then the burn layer, for instance, I'll, I'll do a curves adjustment layer and drag that, uh, curve down to where it's pretty significantly darker and then just black out the mask and then, uh, paint it back in, uh, with a white brush where I want it. So when you paint, are you using, you know, 30% flow or, or 10% and really layering it on subtly or do you, are you pretty aggressive? Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty, I try to keep it really light. So usually flow is, you know, if I'm going heavy, like 10 to 12% or oftentimes it's under 10% um, okay. just being really subtle um, and with a soft brush. Cause it, I mean, it can get carried away really quickly, but uh, that's what I like so much about the layer is you can, you know, you can turn the opacity of the layer down. You can, you know, paint back over a spot with a black brush. So um and that's what editing for me is all about is like just kind of pushing and pulling and playing with it. And then you realize you went too far, you know, when you come back to the desk. And so um, I really like having layers to just be able to adjust that. Well, I, I will tell you, this shot is so well done. Like I see a lot of environmental portraits and a lot of them are good. A lot of them you know, it's funny. It's, it's kind of like what you were saying a little while ago where you, you don't ever want to take the easy route and you're really hard on yourself to, to not take the easy route type thing. And you're really hard on yourself about it. I see some environmental portraits where it's like, wow, they clearly spent a lot of time thinking about A or thinking about B or thinking about C. Were they tired by the time they got to D? Because D seems to have missed something. And when you look at this shot, it really feels like you thought of everything in an environmental portrait. And again, the fact I'm below him, he's looking down on me in a strong, I'm, you know, taller than you, bigger than you. It's a power portrait, really. Just really, really well done. So I want to switch gears. We're going to go into speed round. For the speed round, the idea is that it's speed, so just answer as fast as you can, whatever pops into your head. Okay. You do a lot of location portrait shooting. What is your favorite on-location portrait shoot tip? Man, scout. 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 I mean, I always tell people, that's how you look professional. Do all the grunt work and struggling when the subject, you know, isn't there. Right. Okay. Got a scout. Any mobile apps that you couldn't live without? Um, I use one called Sunroute. 
Um, that's super helpful. I think there are a lot that do that, but pretty much just seeing what position the sun's going to be in at a given time. Biggest mistake you almost made or did make photography wise? Um, you know, I was actually just talking about this earlier. Um, I did a headshot session once for, it was, a, it was a lot of people. It's probably, I don't know, 40 people. And really the way I learned lighting is, uh, sitting in this space, taking selfies, uh, with different lighting setups. And this was pretty early on. And I pretty much, I set up some lights in a way that looked really good. If you were in a very, very specific spot with a very low margin for error and man, it was a disaster of a shoot. And it was a really good lesson for me that like, you know, that's not how these shoots go. You need that room to let your subject move. And, um, yeah, they were terrible headshots, <laughs> but it was a great learning experience. Favorite composition rule. If you have one, uh, make it weird. Oh, I like that. <laughs> that should be a freaking bumper sticker. Yeah, you got to make it. I mean, I use rule of thirds a lot, but it's like, make it weird. Get some layers in there. Get some shapes. Oh, I like that. All right. Favorite drink. Man, it's got to be coffee. I love my coffee. Favorite band or singer? Um, right now, uh, my, my band of choice is King Cruel, for sure. And then... Before I get into the last question, I just have to ask because I'm, there's a couple of things today that are interesting to me. One of which is you already had a Blue Yeti microphone with a windscreen. Uh, do you do podcasting or something on your own that we should know about? No, uh, this is the first podcast I've ever been on. Um, I'm actually, I'm at work. So my, my job during the week is I'm the marketing photographer for Gonzaga University. Um, and we just happen to have a podcast, mic, So I figured I'm going to use it. I like it. And that explains why you have V-flats behind you. Yes. So my buddy Ian Spanier would love that you've got V-flats behind you. Uh, oh, do you know so Ian? useful. Uh, no, I don't. Okay. You'd like Ian's work. Uh, so last question. Is there a photographer that you think deserves more credit, that more people should know about, should follow, et cetera? Uh, there's a Seattle photographer who actually, I mean, I followed for a while. His name is Steve Korn, um, last name K-O-R-N. Um, like the band. Like the band. No backwards R though, so, you know. Yeah, there you go. Oh, you <laughs> um, know Korn, all right. <laughs> But I mean, he does amazing work. Uh, he's a portrait photographer, but he also recently uh, released a project. I think it's called Ghosts. And I'm sorry, Steve, if that's wrong, but um, it's a it's a dance series and it's like it's breathtaking, very surreal. Um, yeah, really admire his work and really admire that project. So I will have a description to uh, his site or Instagram or whatever I can find in the show notes, either at behindtheshot.tv or in the description on YouTube. And again, all the links that we talk about are in those either of those places that you can go to. If people want to find you, Zach Berlat, it's B-E-R-L-A-T. 
Uh, where can they go? What's your, what's your website? Uh, website is just zachburlatt.com and Instagram is at zachburlatt. And that's, that's where you can go find me. I don't have Twitter. Uh, my Facebook page is dead. So yeah, same find here. Me in those places. I abandoned my, yeah. fa- my, my Facebook pages are still there and the podcast automatically goes up on the podcast site page, but I've abandoned touching Facebook periodically. I'll go check it and I'll have like 30 direct messages and it's like, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't use Facebook anymore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so again, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been super cool. I love your work. It's been so fun. Everybody, please go check out Zach. Again, just to remind you, it's ZachBurlatt.com, B-E-R-L-A-T. Of course, Zach is Z-A-C-K, or for those of you in Canada, Z. And uh, go give him a follow. Give him some love. I I so appreciate him doing this. If you want to follow me, of course, you can hit me up at SteveBrazzle.com. It's like the country Brazil, but two L's. The podcast is at BehindTheShot.tv. Show notes for today, all the links we talk about are at BehindTheShot.tv, as well as all the ways that you can subscribe to the show. And there's strangely an awful lot of ways that you can subscribe to the show. There's even a Buy Steve a Diet Coke button there too. And uh, so please do do that. Drop us a review wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple podcast, for example, drop us a star rating and a review. It would be much appreciated. If you want to follow me on social media, While I don't do Facebook, I am on Instagram and I am on Twitter, and it's the same on both for either personal or for the podcast. Behind the Shot TV for the podcast, at Steve Brazel for me. Thanks to everybody for watching. Hope you'll join us next time as we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. (laughs) 